Welcome to Cooper and Company, when politics meets people. We are so excited that you have taken time out of your busy schedule to join us. The mission of this podcast is to engage, inspire, educate, and entertain. I hope the conversations that I have with today's trailblazers in education, business, politics, international policy, and advocacy inspire you to do more with the platform and resources that you have. By the way, thank you to my associate producer, Cindy Lynn for assisting me with this entire podcast production. An elderly Thai immigrant dies after being shoved to the ground. A Filipino American is slashed in the face with a box cutter. A Chinese woman is slapped and then set on fire. These are just examples of the recent violent attacks on Asian Americans, part of a surge in abuse since the start of the pandemic a year ago. From being spat on and verbally harassed to incidents of physical assault, there have been thousands of reported cases in recent months. Advocates say that these are hate crimes and they are often linked to the rhetoric that blames Asian people for the spread of COVID-19. Therefore, we have invited Rachel Hugh, an activist, to join us today, sharing her point of view on the recent events. Thank you again, Ms. Hugh, for joining us. <laughs> for sure, Bridget. Thank you so much. So, you know, I'm with the Answer Coalition that's Act Now to Stop War and then Racism Coalition. And I first started organizing about eight years ago. I'm 28, so I was about actually nine years. Oh, Lord. Nine years yeah. ago. Um, <laughs> you get older all the time and you don't notice it. Like a blur. Um, you know, it is what it is. So I'm, I'm, so I started organizing when I was 19 and, and I came around when Trayvon Martin was killed. And so for me, I, I, I where I grew up, I grew up in um, Cambodia town. And, and it's really important to me that I ground that because when you grow up in a town in America, you know, towns are a place we don't often talk about in, in the United States, but they're, they're communities where our, you know, folks are struggling. Like most people's parents work in sweatshops and they're very, very segregated communities with a lot of racism. And I know, you know, when we we were younger, we dealt, you know, as a Southeast Asian community, a refugee community, we dealt with a lot of police harassment. So when Trayvon Martin was killed, like something, I just, I immediately connected to the story. I felt like, you know, that could have been anyone that I loved. It could have been not just like black friends of mine, but it really could be so many of us, you know, people of color in America and just the kind of racism and vitriolic hate that's out there that can come for all of us. So that's when I started organizing. Um, and since then I've done a lot of work um, in, in the anti-racist movement, but also doing a lot of work and the anti-war movement and, you know, the women's movement, you name it, because, you know, to me, all of it is deeply tied and interconnected. They're not separate things. They're all part of the same struggle. So I've been organizing with police brutality families for the last few years. I know organization, we were some of the lead organizers on the Akai Gurley case, which is a very famous case, especially in the Asian community, because it was the, the officer, Peter Leong. And I, I say this to say that Asian Americans were lead organizers in this case, fighting for justice for Akai. And People never talk about that history, but that is what we've always been doing. We've always been on the front lines because, you know, especially as an Asian activist, like I've always been in the black liberation struggle because it's, yeah. it's really it's one in the same. And so there were over 3000 anti-Asian racist incidents, mostly against women in the past year. Why do you think 
women are more vulnerable in such situations, and especially Asian women, African-American women, women of color, how can we protect ourselves? Why, why do you think in this case for this conversation that the target seems to be Asian women? I mean, there's a lot of reasons for that. I mean, I think violence against women is ubiquitous in our society. I mean, there's a term I love to use to talk about it because I, I really think we need, as women, as women who are talking about women's issues, we need to popularize this terminology that's from Latin America. It's femicide, it's killing of women for being women. And, you know, what, one of the, like the number one causes of death for women, not the number one, but one of them among many is, you know, violence. It is violence against us. And so in our communities, especially, like I could tell you off the top of my head, I don't know a single woman in my life who hasn't experienced violence in one right. way or another. And that's growing up in a, in a working class community of, of women of color. Like the things that we have to deal with in this society is outrageous. You know, two thirds of the low wage workforce are women. We're vulnerable in so many ways because we are pressed because we are put in that position by society and that violence against us is so normalized. Like I, you know, this is, it's, it's, it's a bit of an aside, but it's something I've noticed a lot of like everybody's getting into true crime lately. And it's like, it's, it's, it's very disturbing when you think about it because the true crime genre is just another way of normalizing the complete murdering and dismemberment of women's bodies. But it's like part of our society and we're seeing it everywhere. So I think that when we're talking about women being more vulnerable, it's that we live in a culture and a society that normalizes and it's acceptable. It really is acceptable to kill women in our society because it's not named even as an epidemic or a problem. And it is. We have how many black women missing in the Bronx, black girls that go missing or missing indigenous women in this country. Like it's really disturbing how much violence and, and really just, you know, assault goes against women on every front that just kind of goes underlooked in our society or maybe talked about, but systemically and institutionally, nothing is being done. I always thought, well, you know, my Asian brothers and sisters, they have their stuff together. Mm. But then you hear these stories and I'm just like, oh my gosh, they are experiencing the exact same thing as African-Americans have been mm. experiencing in this country since, you know, beginning of slavery. But it, it's, a, it's amazing how we're all in these little silos, but yet I don't know how we can start to connect so how do you think that Asian American women can start speaking up for themselves? And what are the things that you've noticed over the past, let's say just the past three weeks? What mm. are some great changes, positive changes that you're starting to see um, women step up and, and, and use their voices, especially I mean in the yeah, no, I think there's a lot of things kind of to dig into here. Like, you know, one thing being is that like when we're talking about women's oppression, like women have women of color face all different struggles. And I think for for Asian women and also historically black women, I think there's a there's a this level of white supremacy that comes into our experience that needs to be parsed out and talked about. Like, you know, we talk about black women being fetishized and sexualized in society. It has a very specific history where that comes from. You know, the you know, the, the stereotype of the Jezebel or the mammy. And, you, you know, you go down that, that that whole history and you get where that comes from, those roots. And for Asian women, it's the same. And unfortunately, the truth is, is that as, as an Asian woman, the oppression that we face, the stereotypes, the racism, it comes from U.S. imperialism. And like, it seems disconnected, but it's actually not. Like there was a whole stereotype, you know, if you ever seen Full Metal Jacket um, or like any of that, this just the idea of like the, the white army man goes abroad and he gets his wife from conquest. You know, Asian women are objects of conquest. And I think mm -hmm. that that's when you think about that submissiveness, all of that, 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 these, that, that is very sexualized and it's a whole category of porn that people just want 
want like the idea that you can win a woman in conquest and completely like own her entirely. That's kind of what Asian women have become in our society because of the U.S. imperialist history in Korea, in in the Philippines and today still in the Philippines, which is a a major issue because, you know, the United States is still like the Philippines is still a colony of the U.S. Guam is still a colony. And around Guam, there's many women whose only the only job that they are able to get is in the sex industry. There's really nothing else that they can do. And they Mm -hmm. have to, you know, service these men who come abroad looking to buy them. And that when we think about, you know, to me, like when I think about, you know, what Asian women can do in terms of standing up. And I think it's true of every community. First, we have to start with education. We first have to understand that we are oppressed. And like, if you don't know you're oppressed, you don't know, you don't even know you have to fight. Like, you don't even understand that yet. So first, naming our oppression and giving it language and words as a way to articulate out what we're experiencing. And mm-hmm. I think that if you study Friends Fanon, if you study W.B. Du Bois, if you mm-hmm. study some of the really great Black thinkers in America who spent, you know, this was hundreds of years ago, spent a lot of time to really articulate what does oppression look like and mean for me, then I think in a lot of ways, it's a starting point. And I say, that to say too, like the black community has always been the leading light in America for all oppressed communities to understand ourselves and our struggles. And mm-hmm. so that's like our, we are deeply tied in, in so, so, so many ways. Like our movements couldn't exist without the black liberation struggle. It's impossible. So I think, you know, education as a starting point, but it's really to take action. You know, we, we don't just read for the sake of reading. We read to get involved and to right. organize. And I think it starts with, with really building up locally. What can I do? How can I organize an action? How can I find an organization? How can I be part of this movement? Because there are protests around the country happening every weekend right now. How can I find that? And when I'm there, how do I find other Asian women or other women who are already in organizations? organizations and how do I get involved? Because I think that really that's the question for all of us is how do I get involved and stay involved in a long period of time? Tell us what AAPI means. I hear so many people in the community say, oh, I felt so invisible, but yet the history of activism from the Asian community says otherwise. That's part of the way that we are pressed in America. You know, you really don't, when you're Asian American, when we say you're invisible, like we, we don't even have language access for most of our elders. Like if we, like, I have a friend of mine who, whose father died recently and you know, her mother, that was it. Her mother didn't have no doctor who could talk to her. And that was it. She didn't know what was going on with her husband. And so like in terms of invisibility, that's part of it. You know, that's one element of it that most of us in our communities, we have to translate for our parents. And, you know, that's that says somebody who's I'm bilingual. I'm not an immigrant. You know, I'm Asian American. I'm born here. But like that's the that's a huge part of what's difficult. And the other part of the invisibility to me is like the truth of our struggle, because like you see now the representation in the media of Asians, you see bling empire, you know, you see crazy rich Asians. And I'm like, let's be really honest. Like our community actually has the largest wealth gap of any community in the United States. Like that we have the rich, we have a huge difference between the richest of us and the poor of us, poorest of us. And in fact, the largest group that's in poverty in New York state is Chinese Americans. And mm. nobody talks about that. So right. when we say invisibility, we don't like, if you didn't grow up in the, like, honestly, if you didn't grow up in the Chinese hood, you don't know what it's like. Like, you don't know what it's like to have, you know, your parents and your family members 
members and everyone that you love go and have to work in sweatshops every morning for $5 yeah. an hour. That's yeah. our community. And so that to me is when I think about invisibility, I think about the issue of class, that I think there's a very strong perception that Asian people, we got money, we have it good, you know, we get <laughs> college. And I see why people think that, but it's very, very untrue. Like when you get really into it, the vast mm-hmm. majority of us are struggling and we're struggling on so many levels because we don't really have any inlet in inroad to America. Like, you know, it just, it's very difficult for our elders, for our communities in so many levels. So I, I say that, and I think that the other part of it too is like within the community is that there's so many different levels of generations. Like I grew up in Cambodia town where we grew up, Asian people lived in the projects. That was it. Like that was like Asian people lived in the projects. If you know, we had gang problems, we had all that. And like, that was like such a problem. We had an anti-Asian task force on the police because they literally used to harass us because they thought every Asian person was in a gang. I kid you not. And we had shootouts every summer. So like, it was always a situation and like people don't even talk about that so um it's it's a long story but i'll say that about like our communities in truth are not represented and so much of our communities in history we don't nobody talks about our legacy of oppression in this country that the united states was built by enslaved black people in this country and it was also built by the cheap like the obscenely cheap labor of chinese americans who were like absolutely like there there are still bones like mm-hmm. bones of our ancestors that are in the dams that they built because that's how much nobody cared about their bodies they let them stay in inside of the concrete and it's still there. And so like, you know, when you really go down that history of like just how bad it was, I think that that's something that's lost and just how, you know, Chinatowns came to be. And I'll say that briefly to end, like, you know, Chinatowns came to be because of massacres, because really white mobs, angry white mobs came and would lynch us, kill us, pull us out of our homes. And, you know, 18 and 19, I mean, 1871, 19 Chinese men were lynched in one night as part of this kind of like this mass mobs that they used to drive us out. It was called the driving out period because they drove us out of every community on the West Coast. And that's why we're such an isolated community. So when when a lot of America doesn't know what it like, doesn't know about what it means to be Asian, it's because we have been very as a long history of needing to survive. We've been very tightly knit and been very, really given us no access to the rest of America because of that. But that comes from the violence against us. Mm, mm. I'm so moved by what you just said. And it's so enlightening. It's so educational. And I think the more that we talk about it and the more that we're in these conversations, excuse the motorcycle outside, the more that we're in these conversations, I think that's the only way people are going to learn and really understand um, the value, the impact, the history. Like we said earlier, I mean, the stereotype is Asians are doing amazing. They're smart. They get in the best schools they're doing awesome. They're good, you know, which I wonder if it hinders the communication and the relationship between, let's say, African-American community Mm -hmm. and the city. I mean, I think I think a few things and I'd love for us to visit this whole, Mm -hmm. you know, history of like the the, the fundamental ways that white supremacy pits black and Asian communities against each other. It's intentional Mm -hmm. and it's historical. It is not by accident. It is by design. And I think that that's very important because, you know, there's there's a whole book I could talk about. There's a whole legacy of especially with Asian shop owners in black communities 
communities, which is the primary point of issue, especially like in black communities as to why there's a lot of negative anti-Asian sentiments, which are understandable because unfortunately there's like a, it, we're set up to fail. We're literally set up to fail in these circumstances. And so that's a whole nother conversation, but I will say to bring in the model minority stereotype, it was birthed after Japanese internment in the fifties. And it's very important that we talk about it this way because the model minority stereotype didn't exist for Asian people before we were just, you know, evil enemies within spies within. Mm -hmm. And we became the idea of, Oh, these people are really smart. You know, they, they, they've got it together for the sole reason of the United States trying to look good in the eyes of the world in the era of Jim Crow. And it's very important that we say that because they had to say we're not racist because the Soviet Union and the world stage was like, look at America, look at Jim Crow, look at the Scottsboro boys. You can't tell me that this country has any right to be the moral authority in the world. Mm -hmm. And the response by the U.S. was like, OK, well, we just interned these people. Um, we're not racist. Look, we're going to give them opportunities. They're so smart. They're so great. And that's how Asian-Americans were lifted on a pedestal, literally as a way to say black people need to stop complaining about racism in America because America's not racist. Look, Asian people can make it. Why can't you? And so like it is a design as to why our communities are always at like at war with each other in this sense. And the media inflames it. And it's completely ahistorical because Asian communities and black communities have always not only fought side by side in terms of like struggle and solidarity, but also like historically have always learned from each other and grown from each other. Like during like during segregation, it was like Chinese businesses were the only businesses that were able to even serve black communities, which mm -hmm. is like a small piece of history but i could go i could go to ancient history if you want to talk about africa we talk about asia outside yeah. of a white supremacist lens but right. we have always had connections with each other that this system will never tell you about so that's one thing but um <laughs> i just thought it's a really it's really important, it's to, important mention. to yeah it's very important and, and think about it for someone who might just be listening to this podcast on a whim to get all of this knowledge and really to come away with like, oh, wow, I did not know that, you know, and that's what I want this to do. I want to say thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. I am humbled by your presence. Thank you for enlightening me, educating me. And I, I just really appreciate it. For all your listeners, that the most important thing that we can understand about this anti-Asian, like this anti-Asian violence, this anti-Asian hate movement is it is similar to Black Lives Matter and what you were saying. It is, it's a hashtag, you know, we're there aren't necessarily it's not a set organization mm -hmm. and so do your research about who you're giving money to do your research about who you're supporting i'm with the answer coalition act now to stop war and end racism and so our work has always been about and what it needs to be about is tying the the, the local the domestic to the international like much like after 9 11 and you know, muslim americans and by virtues like south asians just because they wore turbans Mm -hmm. literally were, were brutalized with it, just insane Islamophobic violence. And we came into existence during this time period for that reason, because we said that we have to recognize that the violence against communities at home is a direct result of U.S. foreign policy abroad. And so mm -hmm. that's kind of where I do want to end is that when we're talking about anti-Asian violence, it is impossible for us to not talk about anti-China propaganda. You can feel what you will about China, the country, but we need to focus on U.S. foreign policy towards China and how the trade war, as they're calling it, which is a Essentially, they've said openly an economic war. They've they're literally putting more military bases to surround China. You know, the Pentagon is preparing for what they call, quote, great power confrontation with China, which is very scary. It's a very scary potential that the U.S. continues to escalate because they're so afraid of not having the 21st century be an American century that they could potentially risk nuclear war. It's mm. very horrifying. And mm -hmm. so I think I say that to say that is our work. And that is what we do, that we tie the U.S. foreign policy 
policies, decisions directly to what's happening to our people in our communities. Anti-Asian yes. violence is a direct result of anti-China propaganda. And so you can, you know, you can disagree with China. You can feel what you want about China, the country. But ultimately, if you actually care about the people of China, the United States going to war with China is not going to help in any way, shape or form the people of China. And it's only hurting us in America and it's only going to hurt people around the globe. So I, I say that as if you want to get involved and that's the message that you care about, you want to take you want to take it and say it's more than just hate broadly. Mm -hmm. It's more than just kind of, you know, I don't like racism broadly, but you want to get at the root causes of where this stuff comes from, whether you're talking about the oppression of black people in America, the oppression of Asian people in America. You have to be part of an organization that recognizes that the state, the institution, the systems are racist. And so we have to have a fundamental change in society that goes so much deeper than one policy here or one policy there, or just getting Democrats elected because it's not enough. We need to fundamentally change white supremacist institutions to be institutions formed by the people. So that is our perspective. So you can check us out, answercoalition.org. You know, check me out and check the workout that I'm doing because I have other organizations I'm part of too. Um, yeah. You can, yeah, you can follow me at Rachel Who 88 um, Twitter, Instagram, and just link with me. And I, I, I'm also part of a media organization called Breakthrough News. Um, you can follow us at BT Newsroom. We write, we do extensive in-depths about this if you want to get more educated on this topic of, you know, China-U.S. relations and also just how anti-Asian violence is tied to a history of yellow peril um, and, you know, really mm -hmm. scapegoating Asian Asian countries throughout history for the U.S. war drive. So I'll, I'll leave it there, but I really appreciate the time and I definitely encourage people to check out some of those resources, to get involved, to come around, reach out to me. I'm always here to help you get connected. Yes, you're awesome. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you awesome. for listening. I really appreciate it. Please check out Bree Cooper and Company. And then you can always email me, Bree Cooper and Company at Gmail. If you have any questions about today's episode, um, any guests that you'd like to see on the show, thank you again. And thank you to our associate producer, Cindy Lynn. Um, and have a great day, everybody. Bye.